Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next month's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rokraut. And today we have our final episode in this year's Oscar Contender series. We are here. We did it. We will be talking about adapted screenplay, original screenplay, director, and picture. We're here. How are you feeling? I'm so happy we made it. It's a weird collection of movies to end on, which we always do it this way, only because of how the season has been going. We'll talk about our predictions next week, and we can maybe hint at things along the way today, and how things are maybe a little bit more solidified than other categories we mentioned in this series. But we also had the SAG Awards yesterday that kind of threw a big wrench into things, which we liked. And that's... Maybe what I wanted more in this season is just not knowing or things being up in the air, which I enjoy. But I think in terms of the Contender series, it feels refreshing and exciting to be finishing, knowing that we've talked about every single nominee and just going through the doc for our predictions episode and seeing the names that we've talked about. It's just kind of cool to know that we do this and appreciate everybody and get their names out there. I know. It really is. It's funny because after we do so much research for these episodes and we, you know, talk about every single category, I almost feel like I know them, which is obviously not how any of this works. I don't know these people. But it, all season, we were so excited about Davine Joy Randolph possibly winning for the holdovers, and she's actually sweeping. So it's just little mm-hmm. things like that where you start to to see that. And then even in the tech categories too like might be a toss-up for something like costume design and we talked pretty glowingly about holly waddington for poor things and for jacqueline duran for barbie so it it makes it more complicated because i feel like we have a bigger stake in it because we we've done so much research but i'm ready for this season to wrap up i'm feeling really calm though which is not normal for oscar time but That's kind of been my attitude all season. Maybe it's the predictability of it. Maybe it's because I like most of the movies. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling good heading into the final stretch. Speaking of final stretch, by the time this airs, Oscar voting will be over. So that anticipation, that feeling of us still not knowing, us predicting next week, makes it feel so much more real. It really does. And last night we had the SAG Awards, like you mentioned, We had Davine Joy Randolph and Robert Downey Jr. continuing their sweeps in the supporting actor and actress category. Killian Murphy really solidified himself as the frontrunner for Best Actor for Oppenheimer winning there. He looked great. I loved his pinstripes Mm -hmm. and that little tie that he had. He looked very good. He's been fashionable all season. I've loved all of his red carpet looks. And the big one, Lily Gladstone won Best Actress, which I, I screamed watching it I was so excited and I'm also just I'm happy we have a race and best actress is proving to be one of the most interesting categories year after year so I love that and we're almost done with everything we have the spirit awards today our day of recording and PGA I think PGA is very predictable like maybe the most predictable ever like I can't see anything other than Oppenheimer winning that that's really all it needs Really PGA for me today is animated feature. That's what I want to see because if the boy in the heron wins, then we have a race in that category too. I'm kind of off the picture train, which we will talk about last today. And I, I'm looking at these other categories that we still aren't 100% sure on. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so for today's categories, we're going to cover them similarly to what we did last week when we talked about international, documentary, animated feature, and talk about them sort of as a collection. So comparing them to each other, talking about what we liked, because all of the films that we've talked about today, with the exception of two we haven't covered yet on the Contender series, except in our write-in votes. So I'm excited about that. But Let's get started with Adapted Screenplay. So our guild and precursors here, we have the WGA, which is weird this year because it's really late. So the ceremony isn't until April. It's April 14th. It's way after the Oscars, but only American Fiction and Oppenheimer overlap here. Poor Things in the Zone of Interest were ineligible. Barbie was nominated in original. So it's (laughs) (laughs) very weird. We'll get there. We'll get to why this category is so strange as we talk about the nominees, but 
American Fiction won the BAFTA last week. That was the film's only nomination at the BAFTAs, and it won. And at the USC Scripters, we have American Fiction, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things, which overlap with the nominees. That ceremony will be on March 2nd, so that'll be before the Oscars. And American Fiction won at the Critics' Choice Awards. So our nominees, we have American Fiction, written for the screen by Cord Jefferson. This is his first nomination. It's based on Erasure by Percival Everett. Barbie, written by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. This is both their third nomination in the screenplay category. Oppenheimer, written for the screen by Christopher Nolan. This is his third nomination in the screenplay category, and this is based on American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. Poor Things, screenplay by Tony McNamara. This is his second nomination, and this is based on Poor Things by Alistair Gray. And The Zone of Interest, written by Jonathan Glazer. This is his first nomination in screenplay, and this is based on The Zone of Interest by Martin Amis. What do you think of this collection of nominees for Adapted Screenplay? I think having all Best Picture nominees here doesn't make it too surprising of a group. We have some with really big source materials like Oppenheimer and others with huge IP like Barbie and some other small novels that the directors, the writers really changed for this medium in terms of making it into a film. And I appreciate that when I'm thinking of an adaptation and really the biggest one we're missing here, it's hard to talk about without it, is Killers of the Flower Moon and in what Marty did to that source material and in listening to the Osage people and changing the story multiple times along the way in order to focus on a different perspective. And I think that's the biggest thing in screenplay that we see, more so than director or picture, is that you can take something, change the perspective, give the characters more vibrancy, and tell the story that you feel needs telling. Especially in the case of American fiction, where Cord really resonated with this material and made it his own because of how this story when he first read it, made him feel. So I think all of this to say as a collection, it's a good mix. Would I have liked maybe some other options in there? Of course. But it is a strong group. And I think in terms of the year, we have some of the biggest movies here. How do you feel about the group? I feel pretty good about this group. For adaptations, I always try to read the source material each year. And the only one of these that I haven't read is Erasure by Percival Everett, which American fiction is based on. And then Barbie, it's like, what is there to read? I played with Barbies my entire <laughs> life. I guess that's what it's based on as far as adaptation goes. Like, it's it's just based on a character. The other 40 animated movies that were made before this. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen too many Barbie movies. I used to play a lot of Barbie and Mycene computer games. This is a very millennial thing for millennial girls. Um, I'm sure we have listeners who know what I'm uh -huh. talking about, which is disturbing. But anyway, I think as far as degree of difficulty of true source material, so I'm not talking about Barbie here, I'm talking about the books that I read. I would say that Oppenheimer and the Zone of Interest are pretty high. I mean, I agree with you, though. Killers of the Flower Moon should absolutely be here because the way that they changed up that book completely to recenter Molly Burkhart and not make it about the creation of the FBI, really, which is what the book is. And the book reads more like a whodunit. And in the movie, you know right away. And I think that's such a, an important shift in making the conflict, the violence, and the horror feel all the more real and terrible, really. So I think that that definitely should have been here. But as far as the zone of interest in Oppenheimer goes, the zone of interest is a completely different book than the movie. I mean, it's almost, they're unrecognizable. The characters have different names. Originally, I didn't think of this movie as a potential writing nominee or a movie that would get recognized for its writing because I think it's just such a directorial feat. But after reading the book, this is such a feat of an adaptation because that book, it focuses on three different, very different characters and shifting perspectives. It features themes that are not included in the film at all, really. 
like romance, for example. But that shifting perspective thing is the biggest part of it because what Jonathan Glazer has done, and we'll talk about this with director, is remove that point of view. He makes it objective. He puts stationary cameras around. So by taking the source material and completely removing the additional characters and perspectives and really centering it on this family and never going into the camp. That is a huge bit, I think, of creative license that he took in adapting this that I think really pays off in him achieving his vision. With Oppenheimer, this being based on a 700 and change page nonfiction book, I think that's how long my copy was that I got. And the movie plays with different perspectives and how Nolan, of course, loves time. It feels, I think, also like a great example of a director picking a source material that really works with the type of filmmaking that they can achieve. And for this, like, this just makes so much sense. I wanted to ask you, what do you think of Nolan as a writer? Because... I've been very cold on Nolan, and I'm curious what you think of him in general as a writer, not a director. I think apart from his sound, that's where he gets most of his criticism. And I think it's a case mostly where I get so swept up in the ideas that he's creating and not particular words, or I guess going into his films, knowing that his characters won't be these usually these three-dimensional characters. So I don't necessarily hate it. I think it's fine. I don't think it's the best thing out there. But in terms of his storytelling and in forming these worlds, I think it makes sense and it's okay. I would say he does more here in Oppenheimer than in some of his previous films. And maybe part of that too is just the amount of characters that he has and that being the limitation for being able to do more. I think when he has someone to shine like Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer, he can do more with that person. But there are only a few leading actors in each film that he does that for. Yeah, I mean, this is my biggest criticism of him in the past. I've been very hard on him for his writing, whether it's a project that he's written on his own or he's written a number of his movies with his brother, Jonathan Nolan. But I think that here, he doesn't fall into one of his worst tendencies, I think, in some of his other films, which is just using certain characters as exposition vehicles, basically. Like, we think of the Elliot Page character in Inception. Like, that, the use of that character drives me nuts to no end, because... That character solely exists to deliver exposition. And a lot of times I think this is also because he he likes these sorts of puzzle box narratives and constructions of his story. So you do need a lot of exposition. You do need someone to kind of walk you through the rules of that world. But here, I think that the writing is really clear, especially compared to previous films. And I like the use of first person point of view. I think that that's a really creative detail that he incorporates into the screenplay of using Oppenheimer's perspective. The one thing, though, that he still can't do is write women. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It comes up for him in every film. He's been criticized, I think, for like for having a dead wife in every single movie of his or um, keeping, you know, women very limited. And I think they're written very, very simplistically here. Like when we think about Kitty Oppenheimer and Jean Tatlock, those characters are incredibly limited and feel beholden to certain stereotypes of women at the time. I do think part of that is because of the point of view. Like if this is how Oppenheimer saw them, then it makes sense. But that also feels quite convenient, I think, for Nolan here. Mm. And I wish he could have pushed it a little bit further when it came to all of the characters, but especially them. I'm surprised his wife hasn't contributed as a writer on any of his projects. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I feel like she is like, she is the alpha of that relationship. Like that is just the vibe that I get from seeing the two of them together. (laughs) (laughs) And she probably just I mean, I know she gives him notes as a producer, but maybe writing just isn't her thing. She just thinks, I'm going to let you do this. I will produce. I'll give you notes. I mean, we don't know what these things looked like before she got her hands on them, too. Right. Could have been worse. And like I said, I didn't read the novel that American Fiction was based on. I think some of the comedy here works, but I don't think it pushes it as far as we need for 
this to be a successful satire. There are scenes that just walk up to the line, but then he kind of conveniently doesn't go there. My favorite scene in the movie really highlights this in particular, and that's the scene when he and when Monk and Sintara are in conversation together at lunch, when they're on that panel to decide who's going to win the book award. And they start having this conversation about the stories that Black authors tell, what they're able to tell, and what it means to really cater to a white audience. But then it's abruptly cut off when this white woman walks in, one of the other authors. And I understand that. Like, she cuts them off. It's a comedic moment. She's like, what are you talking about? And they have to stop their conversation. But again, like, that just feels a little bit like it's dodging where he actually needs to go in setting up these sorts of conversations. So I just, I wish that it pushed it further. I also think it's interesting that we have two films here, Barbie and Poor Things, which I think can be kind of compared based on how they handle feminism in the movie. And I just feel like even though Barbie has been criticized for its like feminism 101, basically of the America Ferreira monologue, I think that that monologue has a purpose Not every person watching has a really advanced knowledge of these topics and the characters also talking to dolls. So that is purposeful. And I feel like it's charting this evolution of this woman, really, as Barbie decides that she wants to become a human. Whereas for poor things, I love a lot of the comedy, like I'm going to go punch that baby. That still makes me laugh. But I don't really buy this as a feminist text because the awakening and the growth of the characters feels so by the numbers and it's completely at the service of men. And at the end, she just ends up returning to her dad. And I just, I wanted more. I just kept thinking like, if this is actually supposed to be pushing it and being this feminist film, I'm not really buying that. But I do still think it's funny. I think both of those are kind of interesting to view as a pair. Yeah, even looking at certain shots side by side, you can see they have similar intentions. I think with Barbie, why I like it so much is how Greta and Noah crafted these characters and made them feel like original people. And I think that was why a lot of the conversation this season was like, oh, this is original or that. At the WGA, Barbie is an original, and people online were getting so upset and frustrated over which category it should be in. But I think with the creators taking this IP and making it feel new and fresh is exactly what adaptations should look like. It was giving these dolls personalities and human characteristics and maybe to a caricaturish extent at points, but again, that is their purpose. And making Ken, the Ryan Gosling Ken, look like this crazy person who now loves the patriarchy and horses, and having him go back and change the society, that allows the viewer to see things in a different way, I think, apart from the feminist Gloria speech that we have. Even if we don't look at that, as one of the key points to the screenplay, we can still see so many different elements of what they are doing together to achieve this masterwork. And I think with Poor Things, it's just done in a different way. It does focus on the men a lot more. You are placed in a different society, whereas I feel like Barbie is modern day, but it could really be at any time. Poor Things is placed in the 19th century and relies on the politics of that time. So it's not as timeless, even though it can be seen as a timeless tale or story. And I think Bella's transformation seems more drastic because of her acting and how she was initially written as a baby and at the end is kind of ruling her own society at her home. And with Barbie, we see Barbie understanding the world in a completely different way, but a lot more of that is internalized instead of shown outwardly. Like her going to the gynecologist is a huge small feat. And I think that line in ending the movie is just the perfect Greta way to have done that for this story. It is. I remember when I heard that line, when I first saw it, just thinking, oh my God, she she did it. How did she get away with this? 
And I think in a, in a similar way to American fiction, just one last thing about Poor Things. I just wish it was as unsettling and odd as it thought it was. But I find it just a little empty. I just wish it pushed it actually to where Yorgos Lanthimos went with his other ones. But that's okay. So what would your write-in vote be for the category? My write-in vote would be Kelly Freeman Craig for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I thought this was a perfect adaptation of a really difficult novel to tackle that's been around for generations and that people have a really a warm, fond relationship to. And she just, I think, nailed the tone. The characters were so well thought out. And I I just thought it was a perfect screenplay and a perfect adaptation. What would your write-in vote be? We are both going with WGA nominees here. <laughs> I'm going with oh my God. Nyad and Julia Cox having adapted Diana Nyad's book, Find a Way. This is also her feature film writing debut. And whether you see this as an athlete's transformation, whether you see it as a comedy or a drama, I think it accomplishes all of those things. And apart from Annette's performance... And Jody's performance, I think I come away from the film loving the writing and some of these one-liners that allow you to see into the characters and laugh with them or cry with them along the way. So I think to me, it's a really powerful screenplay. And it includes a great line about going to Petco and forgetting poop bags. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think should win? I think Barbie should win. It's... A movie that I think really succeeds because of its screenplay. What Greta and Noah created allowed so many viewers to connect with the material. And you can do that with multiple characters. And I think that's a really hard thing to do, especially given the material. And it was not a movie that I was looking forward to two years ago at this point. Whenever the news came out that she was doing this, because I was just so scared. But I was so surprised enjoyed every single moment and rewatching it it's it's the lines that get you everything sweeps you off your feet but it's getting to know the characters enjoying the comedy and the sadness and just how human these people feel to you what do you think should win i'm going with barbie too i mean the zone of interest i think is also that's probably my second choice but I'm going to be singing its praises in another category later on. So I'm going to say Barbie here. I think that, yeah, I agree with everything that you said. And I think this is the best version of a Barbie movie that we could have, really. And that's because of the writing. I feel like the comedy is also just so specific. Like, I remember how I felt when I first heard some of those lines watching the movie for the first time. Like, that great Godfather joke about Robert Evans and (laughs) the studio system of the 1970s. And it's just really clever. And I feel like it's really, really nuanced and radical in what it has to say. And I never would have expected that from a Barbie movie. But I guess I should have expected it with Greta Gerwig. Never doubt her. Okay, next up we have original screenplay. Same precursors here with the WGA. We have The Holdovers, May, December, and Past Lives overlapping with the nominees. Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, and The Boy and the Heron were all ineligible. At the BAFTAs, Anatomy of a Fall won. At the Globes, Anatomy of a Fall also won. And at the Critics' Choice Awards, Barbie won. So our nominees are Anatomy of a Fall, screenplay by Justine Trier and Arthur Arari, both are first-time nominees, The Holdovers, written by David Hemmingson, this is his first nomination, Maestro, written by Bradley Cooper, this is his 11th nomination overall and second for writing, and Josh Singer, he has one win and this is his second nomination, May December, screenplay by Sammy Birch, and story by Sammy Birch and Alex Mechanic. This is both of their first nominations. And Past Lives, written by Celine Song, this is her first nomination. So what do you think of this group of nominees? I love this group of nominees. I actually prefer the original screenplay nominees this year to the adapted screenplay nominees. 
So Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, May, December, and Past Lives were all in my top 10 of the year. And a huge reason is because of the writing and specifically how they look at character. I think that the four of those in particular have really strong writing when it comes to character development. Like I feel like when I think of past lives, I know who all three of those characters really are. And when I think of May, December, when I think of the holdovers, it's the exact same way. And I also think about dialogue. Dialogue isn't everything in the screenplay. But when I think about the dialogue, I think about Anatomy of a Fall. Specifically, that's the one I keep coming back to because of the way that Justine Trier and Arthur Harari use different languages and how it plays with different languages. And really, this script, I think, gives its actors, in particular Sandra Huller, space to really go for it. And I think that the structure of it is just so strong, too. And... We have another couple nominated here for screenplay, but I think Barbie was probably a lot of fun for Greta and Noah. I wonder how this didn't destroy their marriage here, Justine Trier and Arthur Rari, because this would be, I think, really tough to write with a partner. It's diabolical, and they've gotten questions about this. And I think she joked about this at the BAFTAs in one of her speeches, of this being proof if something were to happen to her. So I kind of love where they've taken this discourse, but I totally agree because the structure of the screenplay, which is mostly in French and also has these diagrams, which Barbie had some of that too, but to be looking at these screenplays and seeing that she had diagrams for how he would have fallen out the window and the blood splatter and how important that is to the film's narrative pre-planned is just on another world like I didn't even think that would be possible in a screenplay and she is just documenting all of the science behind it and I love that so much yeah that was my favorite detail too because most of these screenplays that are nominated you can download and read and right when I saw that I just I paused I just stopped I was like oh my god I didn't even think about that that you could include something like that in a screenplay, but I think it fits so well with the nature of this film. I also do really love The Holdovers because of its character character and how it doesn't really fall into the traps and cliches that you feel like it might when it starts. I know we talked a lot about that on our review of the movie on that episode, but I think that it really gives each character so much room to breathe and you believe every second of their relationships with each other. And I love how David Hemmingson based this off of his time at boarding school in Connecticut, and he was able to access like that part of his life. And it's funny because he had so many personal connections to it. And I think you can feel that throughout the screenplay because it just, it does. It feels, I think it feels personal and it feels just really warm. And I know Payne hates that. Like he doesn't want us to think it's warm or cozy or any of those things, but I think it its balance of warmth and melancholy is what makes it such a strong screenplay to me. I totally agree about the holdovers. I think the fact that we have three extremely distinct characters here is why it's really impressive too, is that he's writing all three of these different strong characters so well and developing them really well. And I think once we get to those scenes where they're all together, they evolve together too. And I was rewatching this earlier and just laughing still. Not only the actor's delivery, but it's just how endearing, how funny these lines are that sticks with you the same way that with some of these other ones that I've mentioned already too. But I think the category as a whole, I feel the same way about that as well with just me loving nearly all of them and like picking and saying who I think should win roll a five-sided dice and just pick a number because they're fun to reread, they're fun to rewatch, and it's really the scripts that come down to it. My other one that I really loved is Past Lives, and I was just crying rereading this script. (laughs) I think what Celine Song did in crafting these characters too is phenomenal, and in a way making you feel this sense of nostalgia and I think there are multiple things that Celine tackles with 
such nuance that maybe not everyone can identify with is being in a love triangle and the immigrant tale. And I think how she interweaves these grand motifs of love and identity and finding your place, finding your purpose, and in giving that just such a heartwarming feeling is really profound. And I think you leave this movie just thinking about life in this grand way. And it's because of how these characters interact with each other and in what they're saying. I think, you know, we have multiple stories here where we're changing languages. And I think that is important because these characters, these people, people around the world are seeing life in different ways because of their origins. And being able to see that change in a movie when they change languages just says so much more about their characters and in maybe how things change when they move. Yeah, and I also think that being from the theater really aided Celine Song here because I think she took what she knew from playwriting and really, like, she thought about that and the strengths of working in that format and then thought about how she could actually play with time in a different way by working on a film. And I think that's what makes this so strong is how she's charting these characters, specifically Nora, through time. And that's what makes it just feel like a knife in the heart when you're watching it, I think at some points. And I feel like we haven't talked about Maestro yet, but it's funny because I think that all the first time nominees, I prefer their screenplays here than Maestro's screenplay, which I think when I think about Maestro and what I like about Maestro, it's the technical elements. It's how it looks and not necessarily the writing because I don't know if we learn enough about Bernstein through the movie. I don't think it should be a traditional biopic. Absolutely not. But I think just because of what Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer chose to focus on here, which was the relationship between Lenny and Felicia, I feel like we are left wanting more because Bernstein is such a giant that the movie, I think, says it's about Felicia, but is still about Lenny at the end of the day. And I think that's the part where people are kind of stuck in thinking about the film, because if it ultimately is about him and he's thinly drawn in comparison to her, I think that's what leaves people wanting more from it. So what would your write-in vote be? So my write-in vote would be for The Boy and the Heron. I think Hayao Miyazaki is doing similar things with what these nominated writers are doing here, is that he's developing these characters, these animated characters, which I think are harder sometimes to feel more identifiable or relatable and giving them such life. I think bringing from his past and always telling us about his childhood and growing up and what he missed about not having his own mother and growing up during the war and how that affected him and how it can affect children as we see on screen is not only so telling but it's just heartbreaking heartwarming lovable and allows us to glean so much from these characters and his experience. So I think what he's doing here too, also with animals and giving them characteristics and personifying them, makes us see this world in particular, but compared to the other worlds that he's created, just so much more dimension. So I think as I rewatch this more and think about it more, things just change in my mind because of how he allows you into his world. What would your write and vote be? My write-in vote would be You Hurt My Feelings by Nicole Hall Center, which was one of my favorite movies of last year. It's very understated, but I feel like it's one of those movies that reminded me of the Woody Allen movies I would watch with my grandma growing up that gave me a very particular idea of what New York would be like if I ever moved here. And I feel like those movies just don't really exist in the same way anymore that capture the specific feeling that I have that's just, I'm going to romanticize New York, it's fine. Um, But those days when it's just like a Saturday and it's like 60 degrees outside and you have nothing to do and you are just in the city stopping in, I don't know, all these different stores and just going to a bookstore, getting a coffee, going to a movie. Those are the types of days I really just love. And it's part of the reason why I love living here. And that movie really reminded me of that. And I just thought, again, it's like really good character work. The humor is so dry. 
I loved it. I thought this movie was hilarious. There's a moment when Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character pulls a cookie out of her purse that's just in a paper towel that just felt very real and very funny. And I love the characters. I love the dialogue and their conversations with each other. And I love getting to see New York that way in movies. So I would say that one. And who do you think should win? I mean, I totally agree with you. It's really hard. It is like a coin flip because I do love a lot of these screenplays, but I have to give the edge to May, December. I love this screenplay. I think it's so brilliant and twisted and the humor is so dark. It's like pitch black. And I read this interview with Sammy Birch that she did with Vogue. And she said that as these characters were exposed in the movie, it instills quote, a feeling of wanting the characters to say something truthful Almost like a horror movie, but with honesty. And I thought that that was such an interesting way to describe this movie. I think that you just get so caught up in the details of these characters. And the idea that this movie revolves around graduation is just such a smart detail. It works both thematically and as a catalyst for all of the action going forward in the screenplay that I love. And I think it's a perfect complimentary collaboration. I think that Sammy Birch and Todd Haynes really are a perfect match. So I would go with May, December. What about you? For me, it could be Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, or Past Lives. And I would be ecstatic either way. If I have to pick one, I guess I would go with Anatomy of a Fall because of what we talked about with language and how it changes shape throughout and how the characters manipulate that and in through that letting us understand the characters better and in a different way so i i really loved that when i was watching the movie and just feeling awestruck by what she was doing with story and in dialogue and these monologues that sandra uller totally destroys but it's also the language of them that was just really shocking to me So I love their work here, and I think for a a two-and-a-half-hour movie to fly by is also really impressive, and that speaks to pacing and editing, but I think with the dialogue, you just fall into it so easily because of that. I love that pick, too. Next up, we have Best Director. Our nominees are Justine Trier for Anatomy of a Fall. This is her second nomination and her first for Director. Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon. This is his 15th nomination and 10th for director. He won previously for The Departed. Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer. This is his 7th nomination and 2nd for director. He was previously nominated for Dunkirk. Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things. This is his 4th nomination and 2nd for director. He was previously nominated for The Favorite. And Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. This is his second nomination and first for director. But he should have been nominated for Birth. Just throwing that out there because I'm obsessed with that movie. See, I would have nominated him for Under the Skin too, I think. I would have too. But Birth is like just, that is such a me movie. Mm -hmm. Way before it's time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And Nicole Kidman, flawless in it. (laughs) So our main guild here is the DGA where Nolan won, but he's won everything this year really like every single prize that you can win he has won yeah with the exception of glazer who won the la film critics association and justine trier she won the cesar so what do you think of our five here i'm gonna say i think this is a pretty good group yeah i do really like this collection here it was one of the harder ones to predict nominations wise because i had so many people i wanted to get in and it was impossible to do Because a lot of these directors are, again, similar to screenplay. We saw almost all of them in screenplay are just creating these nearly impossible films and making them visually striking. And that's another feat along the way of movie making that make all of these movies so enjoyable and have people coming back to the theaters to see them. And I think what's really impressive is that each director has their own stamp on their films and in making us not only look at films differently, but making us feel differently as well. I love Justine Trier's press tour and just what she's talked about in interviews because she is that more European, kind of like Sandra Uller too, strict yet silently funny personality that we totally see 
in Anatomy of a Fall. And she is so precise, again, talking about the screenplay, that directly translates to the screen. With Marty, we've grown to know him as this just prolific director. And I think what he did with this material here, he was the only person to do this or the one that we could trust the most because of what he's made before. And I think being able to see strokes from his previous filmography here in different characters and villains and protagonists allow us to enter the world and see these different people in new ways. And again, I think it's just so commendable that he entrusted so much of the work to the Osage people and people he worked with on set in order to make this a more authentic film and experience. With Nolan, this is definitely his grandest work to date, but I went in knowing what I was going to get, and it's exactly why I like the movie. You know, having Tenet previously, I'm going again, I think for the first time in 70mm this week. I just watched Tenet like last month, and I was like, I don't know if I can do it again. But now that it's out and advertisements are out, I am so excited. And it's really that feeling of, Maybe you know you're going to be confused and not understand it all, but it's just a fun experience and it's complex at the same time. And that's what I want when I go to see a Nolan film. And that's what he delivered here. He plays with time. He does more with characters here, but he also expands his previous worlds in creating this really cerebral dilemma and in how Oppenheimer has created this bomb and what it can do. And I think in feeling what Oppenheimer feels, he does a lot better here than he's done before. So I, I commend him there. And similarly with Lanthimos, we enter this weird, quirky world that I expected after The Favorite, after Dogtooth, even The Lobster. That's really what he's done here even more. And I think it's just an artistic vision and how he collaborates with all of the other departments is the most impressive thing that we have here. And last but not least, with Glazer, I think his movies are just so unique. I wasn't sure what to expect here, and I was just completely blown away. I think he's able to meld his mind in a different way than most directors and people, period. But he delivered something that will stand the test of time and I think has created the biggest dialogue in terms of viewers and audiences out there. And he's commenting on a subject that people have covered over and over and over just in film history. And I think he's done something so unique here and different that he's able to say even more about the subject, about the Holocaust, that expands that dialogue. And that, to me, is the biggest feat for him. Yeah, I really do love this lineup. I mean, I could have gone a number of different ways, but I think as a group, I know that, you know, after Oscar nominations came out, I think all of the talk was about Greta Gerwig missing Best Director. But I think if we kind of take that part of the conversation away from this and just focus on the group, this is a pretty strong group. I think Justine Trier, this is a really good nomination for Best Director, especially because when I saw this movie, I left the theater thinking not just about the performance, but mostly about her direction, because what really struck me was how she played with sound and subjectivity, how she kind of makes you feel unmoored. And that is all through her direction. Like, yes, that's part of the writing. And like you mentioned, she had these diagrams and was writing very creatively. But I think that is an artist's vision and her cinematic reference points She also looked to 70s horror movies, which I thought was so cool. Obviously, that really just made my ears perk up (laughs) when I heard that. Because I think you do, you feel that, especially with the use of the color red, especially with Daniel's sweater near the very end. I can think of a number of films that reminded me of that I thought were just, was just kind of a genius little detail. Martin Scorsese, this is one of his best movies. And frankly, he should have been winning a handful of the director prizes this year. I think that he's so taken for granted. And this movie is one of his many masterpieces. I think in his late career era, we are really looking at someone who's thinking about 
what they have put into the world as far as artistic output and how this connects really to the rest of his works is just beautiful. I think about it and I think that what he pulled off with the ending is unlike anything we've seen from him before. And he's constantly, I think, referencing himself and his past works, but he's pushing the envelope at the same time. And he knows that he has clout in the industry. It feels silly to even say that because he's our greatest living filmmaker. But I think he's using that for good. I think that he knew that if he did this, it has to say something. It has to mean something. And it did. And I think about the films that will come out later that he will probably fund through his world cinema project or the way that he's paved the way with creating this story. That's really what matters. And I think it is one of his best nominations. It's really stunning. And with Nolan too, I feel that for me, this is Nolan's best movie. And this is the movie that I think people will think of when they think of Nolan, which feels crazy because he did The Dark Knight. And he has so many movies that I think we grew up with. And like you said, you know what you're getting when you go into a Nolan movie. But I think he's the one of the group who made the movie movie, as Harry Styles would say. Like This feels like one of those classic blockbusters, but it's also a three-hour movie about men talking in rooms. And I don't really know how he pulled that off. I think that's kind of the, the Nolan magic, and I feel like this is what he's been working up to, really, in his career. And some of the things that I've gotten, I guess frustrated by in some of his previous films, most of those really fell away here. And I feel like he found really the perfect subject matter for his style of storytelling and direction. Mm -hmm. So I understand the wins, even if I would have spread the wealth, I understand why he's winning. Yorgos Lanthimos, again, just not really my style, but I understand why it works for people. I think because it's a very clear artistic vision, like you said, very creative Jonathan Glazer, though, I mean, this is this is un- unbelievable, undeniable work for me in how he plays with the image, how he plays with form. And in thinking about Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, too, like those two films, along with the zone of interest, really look at the violence of men in the past and how that connects to the present. And I think Glazer does that the most successfully with form and with direction. So I love it. I think it's kind of crazy what he's able to do also just in concert with his collaborators like Lucas Zal, the cinematographer, and Johnny Byrne, his sound designer, to really create an exacting, horrifying vision. But yeah, so overall, I think this is a good group. There are other people I would put into it, for sure, but it was it was crowded this year. It was a good year for directors. So who would you have written in, if you could? I would have written in... Todd Haynes for May, December, someone who's never recognized. And I thought this year might be the year, but I feel like he really just understands perfectly what that movie needed to be. When I think about May, December, I think it's one of Todd Haynes's best films. And I think it just sits perfectly really in his filmography for how he thinks about the melodrama. And there are just so many perfect details in the film. And he gets consistently some of the best performances from our actors and I think Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, and Charles Melton, you're not going to find many performances that are better than those really throughout the year. But yeah, I think he absolutely deserved to be here for one of my favorite movies of the year. What about you? I think this is a great pick. I really wish Todd could have been here as well. The Dorian Awards, the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics, just awarded him and I think this is fitting, the Wild Oscar Wilde Artist Award, going to a truly groundbreaking force in entertainment, but also Sammy Birch won Screenplay of the Year, and Charles Melton won for Supporting Film Performance of the Year. So I think that's telling of this film, Todd Haynes's power, and Sammy Birch too, and what she wrote for them. But it's a film that I wish had won more prizes along the way or been nominated more at these bigger ceremonies because it's also a masterwork from him. And hearing him talk, he's a brilliant person and wonderful director. 
And he knows so much about queer history and film history and puts all of that into his movies. So I did want to mention that those just came out earlier this week. But my writing vote is for Greta Gerwig. This is pretty obvious. Apart from all the discourse of what happened, I think she created a wonderful film. She did something that none of us expected, and she still has a perfect filmography. I think this fits in really nicely with what else she's made, but she's still able to say more than what she has before. I really recommend going and watching her director's commentary for Barbie. It's also a Mm -hmm. quick watch. And I think her insights in terms of her inspirations, how she inserts on the waterfront into the Ryan Gosling Ken character, how she was inspired by singing in the rain with the Ken dance battle, but also at the end with the Ruth Barbie conversation and how those lights She just wanted to change colors and change the lighting on their faces and let it happen organically. There are just so many little details that I loved hearing her talk about and in how she and Noah worked together and how she let the actors improvise and let them tell their own stories too. I think her approach to filmmaking is just so enlightening and inspiring and I can't wait to see what she does next. So I really wish she was here. I know she'll be making many, many more films to come, and I can't wait. Oh, I love that pick. It's making me want to change mine. And you're right. The director's commentary is a delight. It is Mm -hmm. so fun. So I second that recommendation. Who do you think should win? Honestly, this is another hard one. Just flip a coin and put anybody in because they're all good in different ways. And that's why it's so hard. Like, even as much as I don't want to say Nolan because he's sweeping, like that's not a good enough reason because I also think he should win. I guess if I can just get it down to two, I would either say Scorsese or Glazer. You and me both. (laughs) My top two as well. (laughs) I think for just in how they created movies that I didn't know what to expect and came out feeling rejuvenated, but also so confused of the world and... I think for just having distinct visions about the past and in making us look at that in terms of the present and in potentially what we can do as people or as citizens in preventing history from repeating. And I think that's the scariest part to either of these movies, but something they tackle so effortlessly. And that to me is like the most commendable quality about their directing. So you're doing a tie. Honestly, I wish we could have multiple ties this year. I know. If that's your tie, could you award one over the other? Yeah, I mean, like, it's hard because I love Martin Scorsese. I love him so much. I just, like, the love in my heart for him is so much stronger than the love I have for Glazer, which isn't really love. It just feels like admiration, (laughs) which is fine. I think, though, for this year, I'm going to give it to Jonathan Glazer for the zone of interest because of what I said earlier, where I feel like if you're thinking about who looked at that tragedy of the past as a link to the tragedies of the present, I think Glazer was the best at illustrating the significance and the horror of that. And I think the comparisons to Kubrick, which are being made and I've made all year are just so true. And I just can't get this movie out of my head. Because of how he thinks about generational evil in particular. So I recently did a write-up for Awards Watch on Jonathan Glazer. It's just a paragraph on why I think he should win Best Director, even though he won't. But in that, I kept thinking about the idea of a delayed release. Like a delayed release capsule or something like that. Where, And I think that's the power of this movie. Like when you first see Sandra Huller's character put on that coat the fur coat. And it takes you a split second to realize where that fur coat came from. Or when the child, when one of their kids is beating the drum and you realize he's doing that and it's mimicking the sound of gunfire. So things that he's hearing are influencing his perspective and his idea as a child. Like that and the way that Glazer plays with how 
information is released and how feeling specifically is released and the impact that it has on you, I think is just genius, really. And I also just think about some of the shots in the movie, like we talked about that greenhouse when he locks his brother in, you see the smoke rising from the distance and you, it's again, it's that connection. Another really provocative shot is when that flower forces the screen red all of a sudden. Robbie Collin wrote this in his review for The Telegraph. He mentioned that it causes the film to temporarily fail. The screen fades to red and freezes before eventually collecting itself and moving on. I thought that was a really brilliant way to talk about that scene. And again, it's Glazer playing with form and the image to say something greater. And the ending is a perfect example of that as well. I'm still thinking about the ending. So I would say Glazer. Okay, we finally made it. Our 23rd category, Best Picture. In terms of precursors, at the Globes, Oppenheimer won Best Picture Drama, and Poor Things won Best Picture for a Comedy or Musical. At the BAFTAs, Oppenheimer won, and at SAG Ensemble, which just happened, Oppenheimer won there as well. So it really is Oppenheimer's to lose, but our nominees in the category, we have American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. What do you think about this as a collective? I think this is one of the best groups we've had in a long time. Because, and when I say that, I mostly mean that We don't have a film in here that I really don't like. I mean, I've been harder on American fiction and poor things. I shared some of my quibbles with the screenplay of Maestro today. But as a whole, I think this is a really good group. Like, we don't have a Don't Look Up here. We don't have a Trial of the Chicago 7 or, like, a movie that is that feels like it doesn't belong in terms of quality. I feel like we don't really have that here. Sure, there are things I would take out and replace with some more international films that I thought were really great this year, Or, but I'm happy we have two. Like, I'm happy we have The Zone of Interest and Anatomy of a Fall, and Past Lives, I think, too, including multiple languages. Like you mentioned, Killers of the Flower Moon, including multiple languages. Like That, I think, really is progress in terms of the types of movies that we're seeing here. We also have two of the biggest movies of the year here in Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm glad they're both here. So I I like this group as a whole, even though, like I said, I would remove some of them, but I still don't think there's a true dud here, which is really nice. (laughs) Yeah, I think in terms of our Best Picture 10 lineups, this is the best we've had. Because usually I'm advocating to go back to five. Right, and I think narrowing to a five would be hard. It probably wouldn't have been the director five, but it's close. And I think that point alone shows how good of a list this is. I know. This is like the one year I'm happy we have 10 because I think about, oh, past lives probably wouldn't have been included, right, if it was just five. And I think it absolutely deserved a Best Picture nomination. It's almost scary to think of what would be cut if we only had five, which is why... This is the one time I like that we have 10. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Past Lives being one of the movies that today is the first time we've ever talked about it, which Mm -hmm. makes my heart hurt so much. I still haven't picked a number one because that and the holdovers sit there, and I think they have to tie in first, but it's the movie that most affected me this year, and it's one that I continue to think about and rewatch somewhat hesitantly because I know how much it hurts to watch but it's one that really connects with me and if there were a five I would put that there also I think there are a lot of movies here that viewers worldwide have really enjoyed and talked about and I'm just glad that a list is populated by movies that everybody loves yeah which movie here did you watch the most I have a few I watched multiple times I think that's the thing is I've seen all of these movies, except American Fiction and Maestro, more than once. And that just doesn't happen. I do not rewatch movies in the same year unless I really, really love them. And part of that was, like, I saw these movies a long time ago and wanted to make sure I felt the same things about them. 
But for most cases, I just wanted to rewatch them because I love them so much. So that's why I love this group. The most is Barbie and the Holdovers with four each, which, yeah, is a lot for me. Which one did you rewatch the most or what was your number? Because I know you can get up to like seven or more than ten. I know. It's usually really, really bad. I just like love rewatching things. It's so comforting. I put the holdovers on. This is going to bother some listeners. <laughs> I put the holdovers on in the background all the time. Like just to have it on. Mm-hmm. If I'm not even paying attention, if I just need noise, I will put it on. But I've I've watched it like truly in theaters three times. But having it on at home is a different story. So I'll just count that as three. I also woke up this morning saying, hmm, let's put the holdovers on. So I had that on before recording. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It's just like, it's nice to put on. I don't understand, but it just is. Okay. My most watched was Barbie, which do you want to know? How many times? Including at home watches. (laughs) To like six with the director's commentary? Nine. That's impressive. It also came out in July, but the film I've seen in theaters the most is Oppenheimer of the group. Oh, wow. Because I just kept going and it's really long. I just would like, people would want to go see it and I'd be like, okay, or it would be playing a different format and I would go, or like I saw it with my parents. I saw it with my sister. I saw it alone. I saw it with friends. Like there were just so many different groups of people that wanted to go and I just went every time. Yeah. Which is also weird because it didn't play at festivals and neither did Barbie. And usually my most watched movies are festival movies because I'll go once at Telluride and then again at New York. Mm -hmm. That's what I did with Zone of Interest. And then again when it comes out in theaters. So that's automatically like three times. But Barbie and Oppenheimer were different. So. But nothing's Phantom Thread yet. Nothing will beat Phantom Thread, which I saw 11 times the year it came out in theaters. So that still has the record. I can't ever imagine watching a movie 11 times. (laughs) In theaters in one calendar year. (laughs) Yeah, and I just mean period. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, I'll probably be 50 and I might reach that number for La La Land or maybe a holiday movie. Honestly, that's probably where it's going to happen first. Oh, La La Land. Don't even get me started on how many times I've seen that. I'm scared (laughs) to even know. So what would your write-in vote be for the category? Oh, I forgot we still need to do this. Um, My write-in vote is for May-December, which was one of my favorites of the year. I'm not getting extremely creative here. I know I just picked Todd Haynes and I picked the screenplay to win, but I do think it deserved a spot in the 10 because I just think that the filmmaking, the performances, the crafts, they're all at a 10. They're all perfect. And I think it should be here. What about you? So I have two write-in votes that were in my top 10 that aren't here. I mean, that also includes May-December, but yeah, we've also talked about its praises a lot. I don't know if we've mentioned these yet because they're not nominees, which is unfortunate, but my write-in votes are for The Iron Claw and Passages. I think we did mention Passages at one point. I think you did. Yeah, you did with Ben. I did with Franz, but these movies just blew me away. And I wish more people had sung their praises throughout the season. The Iron Claw is absolutely just a knockout film that is kind of a biopic and will tear your heart apart. And Passages is horny and funny and dramatic with incredible performances. And who do you think should win? I'm sticking with the Greta train. I'm going with Barbie here. It's truly the movie of the year in box office in what I will think about when I think about 2023. Again, there are so many of these movies that are great and I will continue to watch for years to come, but it always comes back to Barbie. What do you think should win? I love that. I love that you went with Barbie. You've been sticking with Barbie the entire time and I love Barbie. This was really hard for me um, because it's a great movie year and I love a lot of these, but... In my recent rewatch, I have to say that there was a movie that made me think, you know, in 50 years, which one are we going to be talking about? And I landed on Killers of the Flower Moon. I think it does grow richer with every viewing. 
And it reminds me of Chinatown and how I feel about that movie, which is that it's using filmmaking techniques and references from the past to tell a story from the past while also shifting us forward into the present in a very dramatic way. And the way that it depicts greed and evil and how those exist within systems, I think, is just so harrowing and terrifying. But the way that this ends is so different from the way that Polanski ends Chinatown because there's hope at the end. There's a sign of resilience. And I just find that to be so powerful. I think it's a cinematic triumph. And in years, people are going to be talking about how it didn't win, sure, but also... More importantly, the impact that it's had on cinema history and future filmmaking. And who can actually tell those stories? I think Scorsese has paved the way here for Osage filmmakers to tell this story. And I love that about this list, too, is that multiple of these films will inspire filmmakers to come. And I think that's why it's also really impressive to me. Well, we did it. We tackled another Oscar contender series going through all 23 categories. I can't believe they were here. It's almost Oscar time. Two weeks from today, day of recording. That feels crazy that we're so close. I mean, next time on Oscar Wild, we'll be giving our final, quote unquote, final Oscar predictions. I'm sure they'll change, even though most of the categories are sealed at this point. But Yeah, I love talking about the contenders. I'm glad we did another series, and it is a lot of research, but I think in getting to know the nominees more, it helps us appreciate the season a little bit more than just certain discourses that happen along with certain movies, and I hope you've enjoyed it as listeners, too, and in hearing about what we like about them and what the filmmakers did in order to make their films their own. Yeah, we hope that you all enjoyed this series. If you liked it, please feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe on Patreon for additional bonus content. We have something that's a hard pivot from this award season up now. It's <laughs> This Is Me Now, J-Lo's recent movie, to coincide with her new album. And to check out our final written predictions, you can go on to oscarwilde.squarespace.com. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.